The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. You'll remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We've been preaching through the book of Ephesians for our evening worship. We're in chapter 4. Uh, that's on page 977. They're using the Pew Bibles. Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6. Let's give careful attention to this, the public reading of God's Word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. And the Lord add his blessing. This is the reading of this word. Let's seek his help. Let's pray together. Lord, we bless you. You are indeed the God who is over all, through all, and in all. And we pray, Lord God, that you would come to us in all of your mercy and your grace, your power, and your love, and rule over us as we receive your word again this evening. Please bless us, Lord God, by your spirit. Uh, Enlighten our minds to understand and our hearts to receive uh, precious gospel truths. Oh, Lord, use them, we pray, to conform us more into the likeness of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we recall last time that we considered the way that the Apostle Paul prayed in response to these gospel truths, these wonderful truths which he was revealing to the church In Ephesus, I suggested by way of application that uh, these prayers teach us much about how we likewise ought to be praying. We ought to be praying that the Christian life is a life of ceaseless prayer, but it's not a life only of praying. There are other applications, of course, and this evening we really begin an extended lengthy section of about how the believers ought to live as God's holy covenant people. And let's be clear, these are not just, you know, Paul saying, you really ought to think about doing this. <laughs> you know, these are not just, just polite suggestions. These are commands from God. Paul rightly asserts his apostolic authority. He does so in kind of an interesting way, reminds them again of his suffering in prison. He writes in verse 1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, and so reminds them that he is in chains, as it were. I'd say blessed to be bound in chains to Christ, uh, blessed to be bound as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And as such, when he writes those words, he writes with the authority of Christ. Those words, I urge you, is not just a polite suggestion, 
As one commentator, Dr. Ma, points out, the word there actually is a term of a superior addressing inferiors, and that this is, is exhortation to an action from someone who carried a certain authority over his audience. Paul is basically saying, as blessed am I, as my, as, uh, just as I am blessed to be bound in the service of Christ, so you also are blessed to be bound to Christ. We might say, Paul is saying, you are in chains, chained to Jesus Christ. Just think on that. We'd say blessed to be in chains, blessed to be bound to Christ. In fact, uh, Paul even uses in verse three that, that term bond and writes that, writes about the, the bond of peace. We'll see that again later on. But uh, we, we are bound in peace. We are bound to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, for all who truly know Christ, we know that such such is 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 uh, not bondage in a in a negative kind of way. It's good to be a prisoner of Christ. It's good to be a slave to such a kind and wonderful master. This is this is wonderful freedom. But clearly, as such, we understand that we are under the binding authority. We are bound to obey this, his apostolic word. And I would note a couple of things that we can note about that word in our text this evening. Two very important words. One is that word walk, verse one. Walk in a manner worthy. Of course, to walk is a metaphor for the Christian life, the walk, Christian walk or Christian Life. This is a, this is a, uh, this is instruction about how we are to live. And then the second word is that word calling. Very important word. We see a form of this four times in this brief text, twice in verse one and twice in verse four. Here's a question for us this evening. Maybe a question I could direct to the children, particularly. Children, which Christians are called by God? Which Christians are called? And you know, we might think, well, it's only pastors who are called, right? We, we heard during the Sunday school hour, the adults did, about, about those who are called to go and preach. A church may call them to come and preach the gospel in Lynchburg to the OPC church there. They're calling a new pastor. Is it just pastors? Or is it maybe just, just pastors and missionaries? We might think of the one called to go off, you know, to, to Asia or Africa to preach the gospel. <laughs> it is true that that some Christians have a unique calling unto the word ministry. That was true of, of the Apostle Paul himself. He wrote how he had been called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's what he wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. But note this evening that this same Paul spoke of the calling of all Christians. All Christians are called by God, called by Christ. Children, as covenant children, members of Christ's church, the Lord has called you into his service. He calls us all this evening as servants of Christ. And as such, you must walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's our message this evening. Christian, you are called. You are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This evening, we have just two main points, two points each with two Subpoints. For our two main points, we're going to consider first the character of the Christian walk in verses one through three, and then secondly, the basis for our Christian walk in verses four through six. So consider that first point, the character of our Christian walk 
Under this first point, we have two uh, sub-points. And the first, that is that the Christian walk is to be characterized by humility, gentleness, patience, and love. As we see it right there in verse 2. With all humility, we are to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. How fitting. We heard it this morning. The Lord must really have in mind that we think deeply this, this Lord's Day about walking in humility. But I think that Paul begins with this as such a powerful reminder for us of just how contrary is that standard to which those in Christ are called to the standard of the world. Humility was was not a great virtue, highly prized in the Greco-Roman world, the world where Paul was ministering. That was a world which which valued public honor, certainly not shame. And this word humility can actually suggest shameful humiliation. Think about that. Called to shameful humiliation, kind of like the shameful humiliation that might be experienced by one who is, say, crucified, nailed to a cross, and left to bleed and die. might strike us as something of a a contradiction that this idea of being called to walk in a manner worthy, be worthy, walk in a manner worthy by walking in humility. That word worthy might make us think of greatness, not humility. I was thinking about uh, walking in worthiness, and I thought about how my kids used to love watching the the Marvel movies. If you're familiar with the the Marvel comics and movies, uh, which one was worthy to pick up that hammer? Remember the hammer that belonged to uh, to Thor, or which one? I should say it was. I gave away the answer. Was able to pick up the hammer only the one who was worthy? Apparently, only Thor himself was worthy, and it was not because of his great humility. It was because, I presume, of his greatness, his strength, his exploits as a great warrior. Well, we understand that the the concept of worth for the Christian comes not from the world, not from Marvel comics, but it comes from Christ. We understand that the, the truly great one, the truly worthy one, is the one who humbled himself, right? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? We recall the vision that God gave to the Apostle John, and he heard that question, Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And what was it that John saw? Did he see a great warrior? Not, not as one might expect to see if they're thinking they're going to see a great powerful warrior. What did Jesus, what did John see? He saw a lamb, a lamb which looked as though it had been slain. And he heard the living creatures and the angels saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. How amazing is that? The worthy one is the humble one. Jesus did conquer, but he conquered by his great humility. And so how do we walk? If we are to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, worthy of his kingdom in humility. Of course, on the one hand, we would have to say, we understand that to to walk in a manner worthy of Christ is to understand that we are not worthy. We're not at all worthy. We have no blame upon him of ourselves. We certainly understand that nothing we could ever do has any inherent worth 
to it. We certainly can't merit God's favor or a right standing with our God based on anything that we do. To walk in a manner worthy, then, for the Christian is to walk in a manner that is fitting or appropriate. Walk in a manner that is suitable for those who understand that they have been called by grace, that there's that word calling. The very concept of being called by God in Christ presumes grace. Paul wrote to Timothy that God saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Second Timothy 1 verse 9. That's why we are called unto humility. What does it look like for us? What does it look like for you and for me to walk in humility? I think it means we adopt the mindset of Christ, the mind of Christ. We think of that Philippians 2, 3 mindset Paul describes. The mind of Christ, he writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And so you don't, you don't view yourself as a Christian. You don't view yourself as, as being above others better than they are. Quite the opposite, right? You can look around the room this evening. Think of those sitting in the pews next to you. How are you to view your brother and, uh, and your sister in Christ? You think, I'm the lowly one. This is the great one. I count this one better than I count myself. Humility. Of course, humility goes together with these other Christian graces we read about. Paul mentions in verse 2, gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. As I think about uh, patience, it reminds me of what is the common scene in the Aachen home on Sunday morning. My children could attest to this. Generally, the way it works is I'm the one who stated what time we need to leave to go to church. And I'm the one paying careful attention to the clock. And I'm the one announcing to the family when it seems there are those struggling to be ready on time. And eventually I might be the one that says, okay, guys, we got to go. I'm going to go out and I'm going to start up the car and I'll be waiting there for you. And we know how things happen. Sometimes we leave just a few minutes later than I had hoped we would leave. And sometimes I handle that situation really well. Gentleness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with my family in love. Sometimes not quite so well, right? So I was thinking about that. I was thinking, I wonder what my attitude might be like. Might it be just a little different sometimes if, if, if as I were sitting there in that car waiting for my family, I was, it wasn't my family I was waiting for, but I was waiting for Jesus. Stopped and made me think, I wonder if Jesus ever made his family late. Certainly not because of Sinful irresponsibility, of course, but but things happen. We live in a world where sometimes uncontrolled events disrupt our lives. That's not necessarily always sin. It can be sin to be late for church, mind you, but sometimes it's just part of being human. And I was imagining, I wonder, I wonder if, I wonder if the disciples ever got a bit annoyed with Jesus as they were waiting for him. Could you just imagine the disciples sitting there saying to Jesus, sitting annoyed with Jesus for making them late? Come on, Jesus, don't you know? I have my plan. You're disrupting my program, my agenda. Impatience goes with pride, doesn't it? It's the one who exalts himself above others who becomes impatient. 
You have a higher view of yourself, your plans, your program than you have of your brother or sister in Christ. Might ask ourselves, what will make us more patient with one another? Patient, of course, not only about getting somewhere on time and, and just to set the record straight, we're never late for church. I like to be very early and it's, that's just the way I like it. But patience with, patient with one another in terms of our, of our shortcomings. Patient with other Christians who are not as far along as we might expect them to be in their Christian walk and so forth. How about this? Forget about your own personal plans, your desires, your agenda, and submit yourself to Christ. Humble yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Lord is, is not, not nearly as concerned about whether you're the 25 or 30 minutes on time before church starts as I like to be. He's a lot more concerned about how patient you deal with your brothers and sisters when they do things that are, and perhaps annoy you not necessarily because they're sinful things, but just because they're struggling a bit, right? Uh, do, do you deal Patiently, do you deal gently and patiently with others as unto the Lord? Humble yourselves before the Lord Jesus, and you will deal gently. You will deal gently with your brother or your sister as unto the Lord. You will be patient with others as unto Him. You will be patient with them with their shortcomings. Patient with them when they. Do things not necessarily simply that annoy you, but more than that, patience with them, even when they sin against you. You will bear with them in love. Love. There's that word again. We saw that last time. We, we were reminded of Paul's great prayer, his prayer that the, the Ephesians would come to know just how deep, how wide, how long, how great is the love of God for them in Jesus Christ. Oh, how Christ, in his great love, is so gentle and patient with us. He bears with us. He bears with you. Let that grip your hearts afresh this evening, dear Christian, and you will likewise bear with one another in love, in gentleness, in patience. That's what Christ calls us to. That's the character of the Christian life. And he gives us a very good reason for that as we move to our second subpoint, to our first point here. We see that we are to do so out of eagerness for unity and peace. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity and peace. I think we can say that this is, this is unity and peace which are the effect or the, the result of the exercise of those Christian graces. That is to say that as we act in humility and gentleness, patience and love, that will have the effect of promoting and maintaining unity and peace among the people of God. Ephesians is this book, which of course we've seen focuses wonderfully on unity. We've seen how the, the gospel breaks down that dividing wall. It destroys the, the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. It unites them as one people in Christ. And of course, on the one, one hand this evening, we would understand that, that we do have peace and unity, unity. These are, these are blessings which we do enjoy as objective 
realities. These are, these are benefits of our union with Christ. It's interesting, as I mentioned before, that Paul used that word bond, the bond of peace. We are, we are bound to Christ, bound in chains to Christ. That's wonderful. That's remind us that, that, that we are bound to that one who for a time knew no peace. The one who in his sufferings for us had to become the enemy of God. The son, we were reminded this morning, the son had to be, become the enemy, had to be separated from the father, had to be forsaken by the father for us. There was no peace for him as he bore the curse of our sin, as he faced the wrath of God, the judgment which you and I deserve. But how we praise God that because he was willing to do this, because of his finished work, he has put an end to sin. And he, the Son, is now again forever united in perfect peace with God forever and ever. And we praise God that so are we in him, bound, bound in the bond of peace. In our union, the unity of the Spirit, that Spirit wrought union with Christ, which is ours. We are united to God. We are at peace with God. Praise God for that. And so we are bound. We are united to one another. I'd say, like it or not, we're stuck with each other now and forever and ever, bound to one another in peace. And yet, we see in verse 3 that we have this duty to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We all know that we don't enjoy that peace as we ought to. We all know how sin can disrupt that peace, this side of glory. Sin will always come in and seek to spoil the fellowship, disrupt the unity which we are to enjoy in Christ. And so by the grace of Christ, we, we, we must strive, strive against it. We see that word, Eager. I kind of like that word eager, and I'm going to speak more to that. But, but it may be that eager is not the best translation, as we see in some of the other translations. The King James says, endeavoring, endeavoring, or the NAS says, being diligent. The NIV said, make every effort. So the idea is that it takes work. We are to work to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond. Of peace, Dr. Ball translates this, and to take pains. In fact, the, the Greek lexicon translates this verb like this. Listen to this definition: to be especially conscientious in dis- discharging an obligation. Especially conscientious in discharging an obligation. Christian, are you being especially conscientious in discharging your obligation? to work, to maintain to, to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Are you endeavoring to do what Christ calls, what Christ commands you to do in this regard? Here's a question. Do we show by our, our effort in so doing how, much, how highly we value that peace and that unity which Christ has purchased for us through his precious Blood. Do you value highly the peace and unity which you enjoy with God's people? And as such, are you striving to maintain that, to maintain that peace and unity 
Such an amazing thought, isn't it? Something so great, so precious, so valuable, something we never could have earned for ourselves. And Christ has earned it for us and given it to us. And yet what a solemn duty, what a high and holy obligation to say, maintain it, preserve it, keep it, marvelous. We need to hear this and, 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 and embrace this as our solemn duty indeed. Hear it well then, dear Christian. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling by growing in the grace of Christ and showing forth that character, walking the Christian walk in every way Christ calls us to do so. And not only do we see the character of the Christian walk, our second and last main point this evening, we see also the basis for our Christian walk. I would add to that. That second point, as I stated in my outline there, the basis for the Christian walk, which is the unity of God's people. This is verses 4 through 6. Paul has already called the believers unto unity. We see that word in verse 3, but he sort sort of punctuates the point here, reinforces that by repeating a certain word again and again and again. It's the word one. It's it's a intentional repetition, even though in the Greek there are actually different words for this. Greek grammar is different than English grammar in this way. The word one in the Greek changes as it's modified. It changes based on the, the, the gender of the noun which it modifies, but it still had that same meaning. It certainly would have grabbed the attention of the reader to hear that word again and again. In some ways in English, it does so even more for us as happily we use that same word, one, one. How many times did we hear it? Children, how many times did you hear it? I'm going to read it again, and I want you to pay attention. I want you to count every time we hear that word, one, in verses four through six. It says this, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. How many ones was that? Anybody catch it? Seven, good, seven. Body, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Seven. Seven times. There's that, that biblical number of perfection. We might say that, that, that God and his people are perfectly one in Christ forever. What a, what a marvelous way of impressing upon these believers a sense of their unity and to stir up in their hearts a desire for that unity Receive that this evening. Are you built up with a desire for the unity that we have? It sort of screams the message to us, doesn't it? In Christ, you are one. In Christ, you are not divided. In my outline, I kind of switched up the order of these these seven items of one, covering them differently from how they appear in the text. And actually, I forgot the first one in in our uh, in, in the, uh, the, the outline I provided, and that's the body, verse 4. Just think about that. One body. The church, of course, is the body of Christ. How many Christs are there? There's only one, isn't there? One Lord Jesus, and, and, and the church is the body of Christ. There is only one 
body. We might call to mind the words of our Lord in his high priestly prayer, how he prayed for unity, right? John chapter 17, 21 and 22, he prayed those words, that they may all be one. You know, I think often we hear those words and we sort of lament our failure to, to live up to this prayer. You know, we look at, look at the church and say, oh, it's so divided, how we've failed to be as Christ has called us to be. And of course, on the one hand, there certainly is a place for lamenting disunity as we see it in the church, rebuking divisions that exist. Paul certainly did that, didn't he, in the church? We think of his rebuke of the church and Corinth. And yet, is it not also true that we can, we can rejoice in what Paul says here, that is rejoice in what is objectively true. There is one body. What Christ prayed for has been answered perfectly. It's true. One body. There, there is one body and will be one body forever and ever. There's one faith, the second one, verse five, and the second one I'll mention. We are united by a common faith because by faith we have been united to the one Savior, Jesus Christ. One body, one faith. There's one hope, verse 4. One hope that belongs to your call. There's that, that word call again. You've been called to a hope. And there is only one hope. We've been called into fellowship with Christ and called to live in that hope that we will be with Christ in fellowship with him in glory forever and ever and ever. And we are one in that hope, one hope, one baptism, verse 5. Say what we will about the fact that the church, broadly speaking, has very different beliefs and practices with respect to to baptism, Uh, who, who ought to be baptized how should baptism be administered, and so forth. Uh, well, the fact is that Jesus gave did not give multiple baptisms to the church, right? He gave only one baptism. There's only one new covenant sacrament of baptism, and, it, and that one baptism is a reflection of the unity we have in Christ. Every time we see a baptism administered, it remind us we are not divided. We are one, one body united by one faith, one hope, and one Savior. And we have one God. As the church, we are, this is our second subpoint to our second point this evening. We are unified, I think we can say it this way, unified by our possession of the one triune God. I'm noting again what we see in our text, exactly what we've seen before. We've seen how Paul is wonderfully Trinitarian. Pastor Hulse showed us this back in chapter one. Well, we see it again in our text this evening of those seven uses of, of that word one. We see each of the members of the Godhead. We see the Holy Spirit. Verse four tells us that there is, there is one spirit. And then verse 5, we see that the word Lord, clearly a reference to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, one Spirit, one Lord. And then we see God the Father in verse 6. So it's marvelous, isn't it? Here, once again, we see the, the different members of the Trinity, and what we see is that they are one together in perfect unity, as even as we see them all here in the text. Indeed, I think we 
we can say it's certainly true that that the, the, the unity of the people of God is a reflection of that perfect unity which exists within the Godhead among the different members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are perfectly, perfectly one. We do, do well to think about that when we struggle ourselves at times to maintain our unity. Friends, can you just imagine, can you imagine sort of rivalry existing between the members of the Godhead? Can you imagine the Son kind of trying to impose his will over against the will of the Father? You think there are quarrels within the Godhead? You know, the Son quarreling with the Spirit and the Father coming and saying, come on, you two, now break it up. It's really more blasphemous than it is humorous to even think about it. Of course not. That could never be. Our triune God is perfectly one, one in love and power and glory. And in perfect love and unity, our our triune God has come and he has taken possession of us and he has given us to possess him. Just think of those words of verse 6. Marvelous words. This one true God, he is overall specifically speaks of the Father there, but we can say God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, uh, the one true God is the God who is overall and through all and in all. And you know, we think about just what exactly that means. What is it over which God, what is God over? Well, he rules and reigns as king over everything that exists. But I think if we keep in mind the context here, the unity of the church, this does speak of that specifically of God's special presence with his people, the church. He is over us. He is through us. He is in us as his people, the church. The very thing the very thing for which we saw last time we ought to be praying, God indeed does. What were we to pray? That he would fill us with all of his fullness, that we would be filled more and more, and we should be praying that God would fill us more and more, but we can praise God that he does fill us. He possesses us. We know, of course, that it's it's the, the Spirit who fills us, and yet we see in Scripture that it is Christ who by the Spirit fills us. The Spirit fills us. The Son fills us. And it's marvelous here that we see that even God the Father fills us. That there's that wonderful, albeit incomprehensible mystery, the unity of our triune Godhead. Brothers and sisters, that is what enables us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, the grace the power of our triune God, the one who has come to us, the one who has taken possession of us, even taken possession of our hearts. As a closing word of application this evening, I do want to think about that word eager. Can you say in your life, you are eager, eager for the graces, eager for the unity of of the body of Christ as we've learned of it this evening, even if that that word eager isn't the best translation there in verse 3 or not. Uh, uh, we, we certainly are to be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I, I think this is so important because it, that, that word eager speaks to, to the heart, right? It speaks to our, our desires. What are the things for which you 
desire. Be eager for something means you have strong desire for it. You are zealous for it. You are passionate about it. And brothers and sisters, is it not true that you will make every effort, you will take pains to seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace if you desire it in your heart, if you are eager for it? Well, the Lord Jesus, the one who has called you, the one to whom you have been bound in chains, wonderful chains of love, he commands you, be eager for it. Desire, desire it. If you're filled with God, be cultivating by the grace of God a desire for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Be, be eager for that enjoyment of fellowship that you enjoy with God even now and with his people and will forever and ever. Be constrained by the love of Christ, as Paul writes, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, for, uh, 14, the love of Christ controls us. It constrains us. Be eager for it. Be eager for it to, 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 to possess, to, to uh, experience that in your life and in the church more and more and more. You can't even begin to do it of yourself, but here we're reminded in such wonderful words, your God is over you. Your God is through you. Your God is in you. He's in you as the church. He's captured. He's captivated each one of your hearts unto himself in Christ. And this is the God who's at work in you. It is his work, right? It is God. It is he who works in you, the Bible says, to will and to do his good pleasure, even to the enjoyment of that perfect unity with him and with his people forever and ever, and ever. Be eager for it. Be encouraged unto it. Brothers and sisters, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. May God help us do so. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would come and do, do that work in us even now, O oh Lord God. We, we, as Paul did, we would bow before you. We would fall to our knees and fall on our faces and ask you, Lord God, to come to us and fill us. Oh, Lord, out of the riches of your glory, strengthen us. Fill us with your own spirit, causing Christ to dwell in our hearts all the more richly. And so, Lord, enable us, please, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling by which you called us heavenward in him, Christ Jesus. Hear us, O Lord, for we ask for this in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.